Yeah, super excited about that. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the association that it, um, has the lake and uh, oversees the service basically um, hosts it. Uh, every year, it's really up to them whether or not they're going to invite us to do it, but they have for you know, almost 40 years now. Uh, Pastor Steve used to live, uh, not, not at the lake, but um, in one of the communities nearby that's uh, attached to the same association and developed a relationship there, and we're just so thankful for the opportunity every uh, year, um, the last few years anyway, I, I reach out to Steve and say, have you heard yet? Are they going to invite us back? And um, it's a neat opportunity, you know, it's a community service right in the heart of Lake Forest and uh, uh, folks come from different churches, but also who don't go to church. And um, like Bryson said, we'll be inviting people. I hope you can make one or both of those times when we walk invites in the community. Great way to uh, grow in your faith and uh, be stretched and used by the Lord. Um, so it's, uh, it's cold outside this morning. On Friday, I saw it was going to be in the high 30s uh, coming into this morning. So um, we kind of talked with the ushers and said, okay, we're going to keep the garage door closed so that we don't all freeze to death. It's, it's kind of a tough situation we have here where our, our air conditioning and heating unit, it's sort of a funny thing. If it gets too hot outside... It really doesn't do well with the garage door open. And if it gets too cold, the same is true for heat. Now, um, I, I know some might say, well, we should just keep the garage door closed all the time. Um, and, and then we'd be what some have called in the past the frozen chosen. Just us and no more. Uh, when you come and visit a church, you really need, here's a little, little math and uh, statistics for you, you need at least 20% of the seats open for people to feel comfortable coming and staying. Right now, if a family of four comes, well, they could sit right there, I guess, uh, or five. It's awkward. It's like, where am I going to sit? And you might think, oh, that's a good problem. No, it's not. They won't come back. Um, and those of you in the small chapel, God bless you. I was with you for a moment in the back. Um, that's not ideal. I used to go to a, a really big church, and I went in their overflow room one time, and it was like, this, this is... Um, I. We're with you, okay? Don't feel bad. We love you. If you want to come, there are four seats open in the front, but um, it's not the same, and so we have the garage door open so that we can accommodate more, um, so that we can grow, and, and it helps, too, during cold and flu season to feel a little bit more confident, but it is why we're praying for the Lord to provide that next building. We, we've probably got a couple more years here. God can do something sooner if he'd like, but ultimately to go beyond what we've got right now, we, we've got to have bigger space. And so um, keep praying with us on that. We, we do want to do that. If you, if you come and think, you know, what are you doing with this garage door thing? We want to we be able to reach more. We want more people to be able to come and hear the gospel and, and minister to more. Um, and so uh, we're, we're looking for God to do good things in the future, and certainly today, too. We're glad for the small chapel, the overflow room. It's a live feed now, which is great, um, and we're trusting God will provide when it's, when it's the right time. But do keep that in prayer, though, okay, as kind of an ongoing thing. Well, we're making our way through 1 Samuel chapter uh, 16 this morning. We're looking at the books, the books rather, of, of 1 and 2 Samuel. And in chapter 15 last week, 
we saw what was essentially the last straw for King Saul. Though he was instructed by God to utterly destroy the Amalekites, Israel's uh, enemies, he opted to spare the best of the spoils and, uh, and the king and uh, likely members of his family as well. And he blamed it on pressure from the people. Saul really struggled as, as a leader. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, we read that that ultimate and, and cumulative judgment pronounced against him. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed or obey than uh, the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. The prophet said, Saul, enough already. You keep trying to make up for disobedience by, you know, writing a bigger check or, or, or doing some act of righteousness. Samuel said, Saul, you've missed it. God wants your heart, and you keep holding it back from him. And that was Saul's big problem, and it would remain that way till the end of his life. Pastor Steve, he went into a lot of detail as to the fallout from that decision by the king to spare Agag. But needless to say, uh, it came with a great cost. And our disobedience to the Lord always does. There's always a lot of fallout, unintended consequences. Saul had been told a few times that the kingdom would be taken from him and that his sons would not sit on the throne uh, and another will be chosen. And it's in today's chapter, chapter 16, that we learn exactly who it is that God is going to raise up to replace this disobedient king. But as I've mentioned, it's not going to be for another 20 years until Saul finally passes from the scene and his replacement is coronated and recognized by the nation. Sometimes God moves quickly in our lives. We like it when that happens. I do anyway. But very often, and especially when he's preparing a man or a woman, he works slowly. Because maturity is not a process that can be accelerated. It happens in real time. One decision, one trial, one circumstance at a time. Israel's new king is only just now enrolling in God's school of leadership. And that education, it's, it's going to be painful and counterintuitive. I appreciate this quote from Alan Redpath, who's written a, a commentary, The Making of a Man of God, on First and Second Samuel, and it touches a little bit of First Chronicles as well. He writes, The conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment, but the manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. What God wanted was a leader, a leader who would fear and love him and care for his people, like a shepherd guarding and guiding a flock of sheep, tenderly, vigilantly watching for threats, leading them to good pasture, being gentle with the young and the vulnerable. Our message this morning, it's titled, God's Search for a Shepherd. The Old and the New Testament 
Both are filled with language and examples of how God wants his leaders to be like shepherds. At the end of the time of Israel's kings, uh, when the nation had been divided and only Judah remained in the south, Israel had already been taken captive by the Assyrians, God rebuked the people's leaders in this way. Jeremiah 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. Verse 4, I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. In the New Testament, Paul exhorts pastors and, the ch- and church leaders similarly. First Peter, excuse me, Peter is the one exhorting. Chapter 5, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, as uh, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. A shepherd is an interesting choice for the model after which leaders are chosen in the Bible. They're lowly. They're humble. They, they have to get their hands dirty. Kind of like blue-collar people. The, the regular guys or girls, we might say. They live in danger. They were exposed to the elements. They're they're the only line of defense between their flock and predators. If ever there were servant leaders, shepherds embody that model. And those who lead in God's kingdom are called to follow this example. Seeking to serve and not to be served. And this applies to whatever area of leadership that God has called you and I to. Whether it's parenting, whether it's leading in the workplace, in our families, in ministry. We're called to follow this same model. Israel's next king, he won't just be like a shepherd. God is going to choose him from the fields where he's literally watching over sheep. It was, it was his job, this man, and, and that job was at least some of the training that he needed to lead a nation. So let's take a moment and pray, and then we'll look at the first few verses here. Father, as we open your word this morning, we're asking God that you would speak to us, Lord, that, Father, you would cause our eyes and our hearts to be open, Lord, to those things that you would want to say to us. Lord, that we would be teachable, that our hearts, our minds, and our lives would be moldable, Lord, in your hands. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Our first point this morning, if you're following along with the outline or taking notes, is step one. And that is the first step, step one, in finding a new king, a shepherd to lead Israel. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, for I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. 
But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. Clearly, Samuel, he's moved and he's grieved over Saul's sin and failure. And we see that in verse 1. In fact, the language is the same that's used as mourning for the dead. Samuel's grief over Saul's failure and rebellion against the Lord. And the Lord, really, he has to shake him out of it. Like, uh, come on, man, Uh, how long are you going to mourn for Saul? I've got a plan here. We need to move forward and walk into it. We would gather that these two were pretty close, Saul and Samuel. Uh, Samuel, he loved the king, and he's now wrestling with what's ahead for Israel. As the future became uncertain, how, how are the people going to move forward without uh, or, or rather, with a king who's kind of a mess. Quickly, though, the Lord shows Samuel exactly what he's going to do. Verse 1, fill your horn with oil and go, for I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. We're, we're moving on. Saul has failed, but God has a plan. Sometimes we, you and I, We can linger too long in our discouragement and despair when God, he's ready to lead us into the new thing that he wants to do. He always has a plan. He's never surprised by our circumstances. He knows and he sees what's coming. And so the Lord directs the prophet to a man, Jesse, is his name, one whose son will be the next king. And this family happens to live in the city of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem, it it was a small town, but it was well-known. Small town then and small town still today. It was famous. It it means Bethlehem, the house of bread. There, There were lots of little fields and farms there that grew barley and things like that. Rachel, the wife of Jacob or Israel, was buried there. Boaz, who married Ruth, the Moabitess, was from Bethlehem. And guess what? Jesse is their grandson. And of course, we know that this will be the very town in which Jesus would be born. This place is significant. Well, the Lord tells Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. Now, we hear that, and you know, some of you know what that means, but others might hear it and go, what in the world? You think, you know, you have like a trumpet, and you're going to pour oil in it? I mean, what's this, or is this some kind of Viking thing or something, you know, fill your horn with oil? Well, what it means is, is taking uh, like a ram's horn or some other animal, which was hollow and was probably made into a container, had some sort of lid, maybe some leather stretched over it or something with a little hole and a cap at the other end. Take that, fill it with oil. It would be like a bottle of oil today. And, and you're going to do something with it. And of course, in that day, they would take oil and they would anoint priests and kings. They would pour that oil over them. Oil in scripture, predominantly or, or, or especially so in Zechariah chapter 4, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit. Many other places in the Bible reinforce that. But the idea was in pouring oil over someone is that they were being anointed, set apart, and made holy for some special service. 
Think about those, those little lamps in, in, in ancient times, right? The little, the little clay, they sort of looked like genie lamps that we imagine. And there was a wick that came out of one end and oil was inside the vessel. And you would light the wick and use it as a lamp. The idea is you're being filled up with the, the oil of the Spirit that you might burn and be a light for the glory of God. That's the imagery that's happening here or is about to. In verse 2, we read, And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Samuel's like, Okay, you want me to go and anoint a king? You know, Saul's standing right over there. He's probably not going to appreciate me going on this little mission. You would be too, right? <laughs> Saul's already proven himself to be a, a bit of a wild card. So if your job is to do something that's against him, you're going to be a little bit concerned. King Saul, he knows that he's under God's judgment. That, that doesn't mean, though, he's just going to roll over and play dead or abdicate the throne. Not at all. Saul is a jealous man. He's power hungry and he's paranoid. Well, the Lord tells the prophet... Uh, to make the excursion into a worship service, which was going to be a part of it anyway. Take along a sacrifice to which Saul would not object. Samuel's uh, leaving the palace and he's going to go and offer an animal and and worship the Lord. That's certainly going to be fine. Of course, when he gets there, he's going to pick up Jesse, the Bethlehemite, and his family. God's going to provide more instructions once the prophet gets there, but ultimately a new king is going to be anointed. Sometimes, maybe very often, this is how God works to help his people navigate through hardship, through difficulty, one step at a time. This is step one in finding a new king, right? We want everything laid out, though, don't we? We want full assurance that it's all going to be resolved. Think about Whatever trial you're going through right now or a recent one, standing on the edge of it as it's unfolding, it's, it's intimidating, it's discouraging, it's overwhelming. We just want to skip the, the walking by faith part and God just get right to the resolution, fix this. We want to know that everything is going to be cleaned up. We want to see every eventuality resolved. We want all the answers right now before we actually have to walk by faith. Usually, we also want it done our way. Now, maybe, maybe that's just me. You all are probably much more spiritual. And although God knows the end from the beginning, as we read in Isaiah 46.10, he leads us through that plan step by step. And sometimes the unfolding of his purposes, it takes a lot longer than we would expect In the case of this new king and what Israel is going to go through as a nation, it's going to be almost 20 years. But kings are not made overnight. David has a lot to learn. Following and trusting God to work in our lives through difficulty, it requires patience and faith. A willingness to depend on the promises of God to follow his voice in his word, to trust him through processes. That's all Samuel has is the word of God. He's doing his best to trust and obey. I often quote Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light 
to my path. But practically speaking, how do we live that verse out? I think much the same as we see Samuel listening to and obeying God. We hear the word of God by reading it, and we make the choice to obey it by making our life decisions based on it, purposing to do not what we want to do, but what God has instructed us to. How often do you find yourself in the course of the day and the week and the month and life pausing and going, wait a second, God's word tells me I should be doing this even though I don't want to, even though it's painful, even though it's contrary to my flesh, to my plans, to my agenda, and, and do the difficult thing. How often does that take place in your life? How often do you offer an apology when you'd rather not, when you've already decided you don't have to, you shouldn't have to? How often do you pull back from something that you've already decided, this is what I'm going to do. This is what needs, if you ever, you know, are you familiar with reverse in the car of life? If you're not, you may want to pay attention a little bit to what the Lord would have to tell us. Because this whole thing of how God works, it has a lot to do with slowing down, reassessing, and listening to what God's Word has to say. If Samuel didn't do that, he would make huge mistakes in this chapter. You and I will make and experience huge mistakes in our lives if we refuse to learn this lesson. What's fascinating about the way that this works out, this one step at a time, is that God's Word, it, it works like a lamp, like Psalm 119, verse 105. It only illumines those steps just in front of us, and not a whole lot more. We have to choose to move slowly looking right where the light is shining and, and purposely planting and placing our feet right there, waiting patiently to move forward until the, the light reveals where next to go. The Christian life, our following of Jesus, it should be like that, methodical, dependent, at times slow but deliberate. You might have people who accuse you of moving too slowly, and you push back on it and say, I'm just waiting on the Lord. I want to make sure I don't get ahead of him. If we're experiencing God's blessing, if we're to experience God's blessing, if we're to grow and mature, if we want to see his will manifest in our lives, we have to develop this same blessed dependence and willingness to slow down and allow the lamp of God's word to show us his plan one step at a time. Now, next we come to verses 4 through 13. Our, our point here is a book and its cover. Because what we'll find is the king that God has chosen does not match what Samuel's looking for or expecting. And very often we're surprised by the leaders God chooses using shepherds. It sounds good and all until God actually chooses one. Verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. 
And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, the, the third eldest. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send him, bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes in. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. When Saul was chosen as king, it was noted, you'll remember, that he was a, a head taller than, uh, than everyone else, anyone else. Saul, he looked the part, but failed to cultivate a heart to match the calling that God had placed on his life. The next king would be different, not flawless, but, but a heart with which God could work moldable pliable, teachable. Samuel confronting Saul back in chapter 13 had told the king, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. This king was not what the prophet was expecting. He wasn't the, the oldest or the tallest. He was the youngest, the most unassuming, uh, overlooked, and not even considered in the running. He wasn't even included. Think about this. Samuel asked Jesse, call all your sons. It's not like Jesse forgot he had an eighth son. He didn't even think, why would I call him? All right, you seven, come on. Just leave David with the sheep. <laughs> totally overlooked. Ever guilty of judging a book by its cover? Judging someone by their age, their stature, their gender, their race, their education, or their experience. It can cause us to decide ahead of time what we think about that person, and sadly, even what we believe God can or cannot do through them. And by the way, that's also sin. Samuel was not expecting this, neither was Jesse, and, and David was probably the most surprised of all. Some of you have been to the theaters probably this weekend to see the new Jesus Revolution movie highlighting the early days of the Jesus movement. Some of you have seen it, I'm guessing. Yeah, some of you have seen it. Uh, through the lens of Greg and Kathy Laurie's um, testimonies. Greg Laurie, of course, with the Harvest Crusades and Harvest Christian Fellowship. Calvary Chapel of Riverside. I remember in, I started going there when I was two years old. That was my life before the packing house in Redlands until I was 18. And I remember in elementary school when they changed their name to Calvary Chapel Riverside to Harvest because at the private school I went to for a few years, they wanted to know if families were going to church. And they said, write the name of your church. And I couldn't remember because the name had just changed. And I was like, I don't know. It used to be Calvary Chapel and it's something else now. But 
You might be aware of this, and this may have occurred to you, but it's a little easier to appreciate that story 50 years later. Greg was 19 years old when Pastor Chuck Smith sent him out to Riverside to teach a Bible study. How many of you would be willing to go to a church led by a 19-year-old? Let alone a church where the pastor is sending out 19-years-old. Some of you think, I'm too young. I'm almost 47 now, going on 50. And, and this guy was 19. Long hair, wild, a hippie. God's choices are sometimes the opposite of what or who we would choose. Which is why it's important that we stay close to his heart and his word and are led by his spirit. So we don't miss what he's doing. How are we doing right now with laying aside our preconceived ideas? Are we, are we quick to decide things about people? Well, this is what God can do through that person or can't. Or this is the kind of person that God uses. Or, or that kind of a person, I, I'm going to limit them for these reasons. Don't make that mistake. I've told you my story before, but when I was a youth pastor, I, re I still remember it like it was yesterday. I see myself in the parking lot before the new building out in Redlands, and uh, I was leading the junior high ministry, and in rolls this guy with this lifted truck and squeals into the parking lot. I was so mad, endangering our youth, uh, this, you know, wild ruffian, and, uh, and I stormed over to him, and I told him, you slow down in this parking lot. We've got people walking around here. Somebody's going to get hurt. And then I see him get out of the truck and make his way to one of, the, one of the pastor's daughters. And I'm like, what in the world is going on here? And this guy's asleep at the switch, man. He's letting this guy hang out with his daughter. And, uh, and I got to know him over time and, and realized that he, he needed to learn how to drive, but he did love the Lord. Those two eventually got married. And, and I had him. He ended up teaching Bible. He pastors a church now in, uh, out in the Inland Empire and sweetest guy, loves the Lord, if I had my way, and if I was the one declaring who should be anointed and not, I, I, he, he wouldn't be serving the Lord. We don't always see it. And more often than not, it's, it's the ones we assume it's, it's not. We, we, want the, we want the guy with the seminary degree. We, we want the ones wearing the three-piece suit or the whatever else. And God's like, no, give me a shepherd. Give me somebody I can work with. Give me, give me somebody who's willing to learn, not somebody who thinks they know it all. He's concerned with the heart. It's strange how God chooses to work with the young, isn't it? David, he's, he's probably in his teens somewhere. Some people say, you know, 11 to 16, probably on the higher end of that. And it's going to be a while before he actually becomes king, but he'll, he'll, he'll sit down on the throne in his 30s. Remember God's word to the young prophet Jeremiah? I'm reading in Jeremiah devotionally right now. And I'll tell you what, you get halfway through that book and you start to forget that he started out as a, as a kid, intimidated by the calling that God had on his life. Jeremiah chapter 1, it opens up verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. But the Lord... Excuse me, then said I, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, 
for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. How about Paul's encouragement to the young pastor Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct in love in spirit and faith and in purity. For those that are here this morning that are young, I know the youth ministry comes second service, but uh, some of you are here that are uh, under 40 or under 35 or uh, 25 and, and younger. Don't think God can't use you. Don't think he doesn't want to use you. He's looking for availability. He's looking for those that will say yes to him. Now, does God use old people? The other day we were in our board meeting. I had our, our uh, board of elders together and we were uh, meeting as we do to kind of review the business of the church to talk about things. And I, I mentioned to them, I was really excited to see, you know, God's bringing visitors to our church and new people every week and seeing younger families. And I, and I, I looked at them. Most of them have gray hair. And I said, you know, well, except one. And, and I, I, well, he's probably got some gray. But anyway, um, I, I said, you know, don't get me wrong. You know, I, I, I love old people. I love you guys. But, but, the church of God, it should be a reflection of the kingdom of God, and it, it should be a reflection of the community in which we live. And that means there should be people of all different ages and all different uh, colors and backgrounds and socioeconomic and everything else. And I get excited about that when the, when the church starts to look a little bit more diverse and reflect how God wants to work in the world. So, so, you know, if you're here and you're a little bit older and you're feeling kind of left out, don't worry, God uses old people too. Um, Moses was older when he finally got to work, and uh, Abraham was 100 when he had a kid. I'm not saying that's going to happen to you. Um, he's looking for availability. He's looking at the heart. You get that covered, you'll, you'll be used by me. Verse 4, so Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, do you come peaceably? Now, Samuel had just dealt violent judgment against the king of the Amalekites. Those days of Samuel, the old prophets were peaceful. But not this time. Samuel explains that he's there to worship, and he invites these elders to join him along with Jesse and his seven sons uh, once they were all consecrated and therefore able to participate in, uh, in the ceremony. Verse 6. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab was Jesse's oldest, probably the tallest, and it just made sense. But that's not the criteria God uses for his purposes and the decisions that he makes. And he doesn't consult with us, nor does he rely on the same conventional wisdom that we tend to conform to. Unless we slow down and, and look for the light of God's word where that next step is. We, we very easily miss it. Isaiah 55, 8, 9, 8, 8 through 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is especially true when it comes to his choosing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. 
And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Hanani, uh, a prophet, rebuked Judah's king Asa for not trusting God with his battles and enemies. And he spoke these words to that, that wayward king, Second Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. A heart completely given to God, that's what he's looking for. Does that describe your heart and mine today? What are those areas where we are quite literally saying no to the Lord, where we're reserving the right to do it our way, where we're preferring our plans and directions over his, where, where we are setting aside his word and leaning on our own understanding. He's looking. He, he, he's, he's saying, where are those men and women who are given to me? I, I know Pastor Steve mentioned it last week, and many of us were thinking about Asbury and, and the revival, and what, what's God going to do, and, and, and what's revival? Some have described it and said, you, you draw a circle around yourself and say, Lord, start with me. Revival will never come apart from that. Those are strong words, Pastor. They're true. It's not, it's not oh, it started over there and it's going to move and hit me. It'll pass you up. It'll go around you. God won't be stopped by you if you insist on holding on to your way. You won't experience it apart from real surrender, apart from a return to God's word, apart from a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit that starts to say, God, I, I, I recognize I do not always get it, but I think I do sometimes. Lord, help me. Help me to humble myself. God, I want to come under your word and your ways. I want to follow your Holy Spirit. It's how Jesus calls men and women, Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Does your Christian experience of late feel like you are losing, losing your life, having to give up ground? We get that confused, don't we? Oh, if I'm following Jesus, I'm going to be winning. Really? I think Jesus said you, you got to give some things up. You're actually going to lose your life. Now, in it, we gain. But the gain doesn't come until we've first released total surrender. That's what God wants in his people, and it's what he requires in his leaders. Verse 11, and Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes, <laughs> till he comes here. So David's called for an afterthought, completely overlooked. Jesse motions to the hills beyond, like, well, he's out over there taking care of the, the sheep. You can maybe see the flock on the hillside a, a distance away. 
probably singing to the Lord with his, with his lyre, his harp. And so from the sheepfold, God has selected the shepherd of Israel, the king that the nation needed. David, who would write, the Lord is my shepherd. This one who knew how to follow the Lord, he could lead. It's Psalm 78, verse 70, not written by David. We read, he also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes, the female sheep that had young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. David was a shepherd. We need to be careful about despising the days of small things that the prophet Zechariah talks about. God looks for his greatest leaders in the sheepfold. He seeks out not the ones trying to be seen, but the ones simply busy about serving him outside of the spotlight. Verse 12 again, so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. David was a smart and good-looking guy. That's what those words mean, basically. But God was looking deeper. And so he was anointed. We're not told explicitly if, if everyone present understood what this meant. They, they would know that David was being set aside for something important, but um, it, it's possible and even likely that they didn't, that the prophet did not explicitly say, you know, behold the next king of, of Israel, because it's not spoken of after this. Um, but almost certainly Samuel would have told David, uh, who for now heads back to the flocks. <laughs> Lastly, let's read verses 14 through 23, the king's first assignment. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, now we're back with Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, we might ask, what does this mean? Like God dispatching uh, demons or something? Well, it's, it's one of a couple of things. First of all, Job, the book of Job, it gives us that background insight to spiritual warfare. We understand that uh, uh, Satan and his minions, they can't do anything without God's permission. So it may be that God is simply lifting protection from Saul and letting the enemy have his way in his life. It could also mean that this is some other angelic being that's bringing about distress in Saul's life. Ephesians 4 verses 25 through 27, actually 26 reads, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. It would seem that Saul had definitely given place to the devil in his life through his sin, and the enemy is exploiting it. Verse 15, and Saul's servant said to him, surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. His advisors had the discernment to recognize uh, that this is, uh, this is a spiritual thing here. Saul, though, is not about to repent, and we don't read of anything remotely close to that. But verse 16, let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall be that he will play it with his hand, and when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, 
you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. And so it's decided that Saul basically needs a worship leader uh, in his courts to help soothe him when he's afflicted by this spirit. So for the king, help is sought and it's sovereignly directed by God because of all the people that could be uh, selected to minister to King Saul, who do they suggest but the newly and secretly anointed king of Israel, David? Verse 18, then one of his servants answered and said, look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Verse 19, therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat and sent them by his son to Saul. Uh, sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him and he loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. A close relationship uh, was developed. Then Saul said to Jesse, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. The king uh, asks David's father, would you let him minister to me? He's my armor bearer. He's useful to me. I, I, I'm gaining blessing and relief from my affliction through his, uh, through his playing of music and worshiping of the Lord. And so it was, whenever the spirit from God was upon Saul, the distressing spirit, that David would play, would take a harp, excuse me, and play it with his hand. And then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Not a harp like the big ones that we have today, but kind of a handheld, like closer to a guitar, we would imagine. A lyre, it would be called. David has his first assignment in serving the current king. Many of the lessons that uh, we're going to glean from these books of First and Second Samuel, they speak to leadership, how God chooses, what he expects, and how a leader's to behave, how they're to lead. He works very differently than we would imagine. He's slower than we are, and he looks in places that we would never consider, calling men and women that we would deem unworthy. But in doing so, he is glorified. And it's, it's so obvious in those cases that the successes are only because of his power and faithfulness. Oswald Sanders, in his book, Spiritual Leadership, he writes of uh, one great leader who was chided for not worrying more about the future of the organization that he led and how it would fare in the years after his passing. But the leader in Sanders' words basically believed that if the work was from God, nothing good, excuse me, if the work was from God, nothing could dismantle it. And if it were not from God, no good purpose was served by keeping it going. Martin Luther wrote, we tell our Lord plainly that if he will have his church, then he must look to and maintain and defend it. For we can neither uphold nor protect it. And if we could, then we should become the proudest donkeys under heaven. <laughs> our Lord doesn't want donkeys. He wants sheep and shepherds to lead them. May we live. May we live with him as our good shepherd, 
trusting his care over our lives, doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly before him. Why don't you stand with me as the worship team leads us in a final song of worship and praise this morning. Father, as we consider your word, Lord, from 1 Samuel chapter 16, we pray, God, that you would make us men and women who are teachable, who walk in humility. Lord, that we would be sensitive to those things that you would say to us this morning. God, that we would not only listen, but that we would respond and obey from our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.